Press play, curtain of an hour in. It's time to take a spin. The shade and tea to spill. Ooh, drama. Oh, that's a tweet. Did they book? Who got on the option? No, oh, I'm not well. What, what star will we talk to today? Oh, that's a gag, honey. Say no more. Drama. Drama. Welcome to Drama, a podcast that covers theater, pop culture, love, and life in, in New, New York, York City. City. I'm Connor McDowell. And I'm Dylan McDowell, and welcome back to everyone for another sizzling episode of Drama. We are so excited with our guest today. I really want to jump right in, but before we do that, I do want to just check in and see how you're doing, Connor. I feel like we haven't gotten personal in a while with you on the pod. <gasps> I know. I've been a little, I've been secretive lately. I'm just kidding. Drama. Okay, so I'm great. I mean, it's that end of summer kind of vibe. You know what I mean? It feels like we didn't have a summer, but it also feels like it's ending so soon, and there's been... A lot of odd pop culture occurrences lately. I mean, one of them is I binged all of Selling Sunset on Netflix, which was a choice. And um, I know, I know, terrible, but interesting. Or I don't know it? how you got there, Connor. I think that says something about where your mental state was. I know. And it's all trickery, too, because I watched this show. It's basically like these, you know, powerful female real estate agents that are in L.A. selling these like multimillion dollar properties. And it's from the people who produced The Hills, you know, back in like 2005, six. And so I should have gone into it knowing that it would be literally fabricated, like everything they do. It's a reality show, but it's, you know, like, for example, one girl is getting married to her 25-year-old French boyfriend. And this woman is actually amazing. She's 37. Her name's Mary. She's been married three times. She got pregnant the first time she had sex at 16. She has this amazing back tattoo. She's the best agent in the in the realty group. Like, honestly, they should make a scripted drama series about her with Malin Ackerman. She looks like Malin Ackerman from, oh, I from love 27 her. Dresses. I can't think of what else she's in. She, she was in Watchmen, the movie before the HBO movie. series. Yeah. But anyway, this woman, Mary, is amazing. And she's dating this 25-year-old, really hot, like over six foot tall French guy named Romain. And like the whole conflict is that they might may or may not get married. And he's very young and... I don't know. Her son is only two years younger than him. It's this whole thing. But wow. I mean, age isn't, um, doesn't matter because they are so madly in love. But they, the whole storyline is they're going to get engaged, they get engaged, and they're going to get married. And I just found out they were already married when the show started. But they made all this up for content for this reality show. So strange. Oh, they hoodwinked I mean, all the viewers. That's not fair. Hoodwinked all of us. But it's good. And the, the, one of the main girls on it is, was married to Justin Hartley from This Is Us. He plays, yeah. um, I forget his name on This Is Us. Kevin. Kevin. Right? Kevin. But anyway, it's pretty good. But I watched all of that. And then Dorinda is leaving Housewives. I can't talk about it. But anyway, so much pop culture stuff. And in the theater world, we didn't talk about this. Diana, the musical, is being filmed and put on Netflix. Netflix. I know. Now, what I understand, though, is that Netflix isn't owning it in the way that Disney Plus owns Hamilton. It's like the the filmed version. It's sort of just like a uh, they bought like the rights to license it in a way. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. So it's not a Netflix original? No. I think it's brilliant. I think that this is going to really bring interest for Diana. If the show is good. Um, I think it'll bring a lot of interest. Remember when MTV aired Legally Blonde, the musical? Mm-hmm. And actually, speaking of The Hills, the girls from The Hills were like doing the commercial breaks and hosting yes, the evening. so random. So weird. 
But that made us interested to go see Legally Blonde. And we did, did the next summer. I just realized I had a dream last night that Orfe was in it and she was talking to my mother. And anyway, I'm really going Gosh, off. I, I love Orfe. No, I love it. You're you're very awake on this early this early morning, and I feel like I'm still waking up. So I oh appreciate your enthusiasm, Connor. I um I love Orfe, and I love the idea of filming theater for different mediums. And you know, our guest today, this is what we call a segue. Yes, has, has had one of his pieces of content, his art, his Tony nominated art, filmed and put on first in theaters, then Netflix, and now. It's on Disney Plus. Oh my God! It's on every platform imaginable. It's it's crossed all of them, and you know I'm gonna I'm gonna bring him in. Please do. Our guest today is a Broadway living legend. He is the recipient of the 2004 Tony Honor for Excellence in Theater and is a two-time Tony Award nominee, having been nominated for Best Director of a Musical for Newsies and for Best Choreography for the Grease Revival in 1994. The credits are endless, as he also directed Bonnie and Clyde, Jekyll and Hyde, Brooklyn, Deaf West's Big River, High School Musical 1 and 2 on stage, Tommy Toon Tonight, 9 to 5 The Musical in the UK, and most recently Between the Lines and Last Days of Summer. He choreographed Grey Gardens, co-choreographed Annie Get Your Gun, starring Bernadette Peters, Miss Reba McIntyre with a little Susan Lucci in the middle there, associate choreographed The Will Rogers Follies, and so much more. He lives in New York City with his husband, Michael, and he is an associate artist at the Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. He serves on the board of directors for Covenant House International and recently directed and became an Emmy Award contender for A Night of Covenant House Stars on Amazon Prime. He's worked with every Broadway star imaginable, and this is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to his bio. Please welcome to drama, Jeff, Jeff Calhoun. Calhoun. Hey, Dylan. Hey, Connor. How are you? We're amazing. I'm, I'm awake now. I wasn't awake five minutes ago. I love I am listening now. to you guys, but you know so much about pop culture. It just made me feel so old. <laughs> no, no, pop no. Culture was like Sonny and Cher getting a divorce. Now <laughs> that's where my fingers on the pulse. <laughs> oh my god! You have such an amazing career, and you've done. You've worn so many hats throughout all of it. Well, yeah, I mean, it's all I ever wanted to do uh, growing up in Pittsburgh. Well, that's not true. I also wanted to be Terry Bradshaw, but that was, not, <laughs> that was not in the cards. I'm so afraid all of my references are like before you were born. God, I just, oh, no, weird. God. But anyway, <laughs> so I either wanted to, you know, Gene Kelly was from Pittsburgh, and um, I was lucky enough to take tap dance class from the same tap teacher as Gene Kelly. Oh, wow. And then I also played football. I was our quarterback freshman year in high school. And then I had my knee bent backwards and I returned as drum major. But that, oh. that's a whole other story. <clears throat> but I had, to leave, I had to leave football rehearsals, as I used to call it, to mess with the other guys' heads. But I left a half an hour early every Wednesday to go to tap dance class, to the Fairgreaves School of Dance. And so as a kid, it was either I wanted to be Gene Kelly, Fred Astaire, or Terry Bradshaw. And... Um, it turned out I followed more in the footsteps of Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly. Amazing. Well, that's fantastic. And you know, you're a Midwest boy at heart. Oh yeah, Pittsburgh. Love it. Great place to be raised, right? Just a great place. Oh yeah. It really is. Everyone's very nice. And you guys are from uh, Ohio? Yeah, that's we're right. Cleveland. Which, you know, that's really where I got my theatrical uh, start was with uh, Mr. John Kenley of the Kenley Players. 
Um, a truly fascinating uh, icon. He's remarkable. I think most everyone that's ever met him will say the same thing. You know, he really, he was a class act and he created basically, in my opinion, what Broadway's become. You know, he took stars as the MGM contracts were waning, you know, from the Mickey Rooney's and Sid Charisse and Juliet Prowse and Ann Miller. I mean, huge, huge stars. And he would bring them to Ohio so people could see them live on stage. And that's really what Broadway's become, right? You take a big star and you put it in a revival. And he was yeah. back in the 50s, you know, 50s and 60s. But anyway, he was a remarkable wow. man. And um, Ann Miller was doing a show called Anything Goes. And they needed one more boy dancer. And um, my mom drove me to Ohio from Pittsburgh and I got the job. And so at 16, Mr. Kendall gave me my equity card. And I got to dance with Ann Miller, which was very exciting. That oh, how cool. Incredible. So you were 16. So this was a summer stock gig. So this was like, okay, wow. Yeah. And that's also where I met Tommy Toon, who sort of changed my life. So, you know, summer stock was, and it just taught me, you were talking about wearing many hats. You know, when you start as a, a chorus boy, and I was very happy being a chorus boy, but then you kind of just outgrow that, or you get too old to be hired to be in the chorus. They start giving you a line here or there. And um, and then I always, you know, choreography was always so interesting to me because it was a lot like the plans in football. Like football plays to me, I love writing on the chalkboard and how I storyboard my um, numbers were kind of very similar. I find a lot of similarities between sports and uh, the arts. But anyway, um, so then I started getting little supporting roles and then I was lucky enough to replace um, Tommy Toon in a show with Twiggy called My One and Only. Mm -hmm. Oh, he, um, there was a show he did called Nine that was very successful. So they did oh, yeah. a, um, a tour, a national tour for it. And when he went out to direct that tour, I got to uh, marry Twiggy 16 times <laughs> and dance with the legendary Honey Coles in a very wow. number they created together. And um, so it's been really interesting. And then I had a show called Brooklyn years ago. Um, with Oh, yeah. yeah. We love Brooklyn. We love Brooklyn and got to work with and, and discover Eden, you know. Mm. Is this stream of consciousness okay? This is everything we want to hear. It's ridiculous, but um, yeah, I remember. I'm just jumping around because I've only had one cup of coffee. You can always steer me back on track, but what just came to mind was um, just talking about wearing many hats is uh, we couldn't find anyone interested in producing it um, mm. because there was no one famous involved. And uh, at the time, you know, we weren't famous enough to raise the money. And so John McDaniel, the brilliant John McDaniel from the Rosie O'Donnell show. I don't know if you remember that, but it was his band. Mm -hmm. He was the Doc Severinsen of... Um, and he recently appeared on her, the Actors Fund concert that she did, the Rosie O'Donnell show revival. He, well, he, he thinks big. He's really not only a great musician, but just a really smart, smart businessman. And I took him the demo to Brooklyn just to ask him if he wanted to be the musical director. And uh, he said, well, why don't we just produce it ourselves? And uh, so it was sort of baptism by fire. So anyway, we went to LA, we had no money. And so my friend, Mary Lou Henner um, has a home out there. And I asked her, could we use your house for auditions? Cause we didn't have money to even pay for a rehearsal studio. And in walk at the end of the day in walk this, this girl, um, and she was in between gigs at Universal. She was doing Spider-Man at Universal Studios. And her mm -hmm. name was Eden Espinosa. And we were like, oh, that's our Brooklyn. 
Uh, wow. A star is born. Yeah, she was, um, yeah, she's remarkable. And Karen Oliva was in that. And I mean, such a great, great cast. And, but we learned, you know, we learned how to produce. So to your point, um, I have been fortunate enough to kind of understand every aspect of the business, which I think helps uh, with direction because you're sympathetic Mm -hmm. to everyone's point of view. Right. You, you try to create ideas that are realistic, economical, uh, fun for the actor, motivated, driven, you know, all the, that kind of thing. So I think the more knowledge you have, the better director you can be. Yeah. What, what would you say your process is when you first day of, of sitting down, you've got the cast assembled? Like, what would you say yeah. happens? Well, then? first of all, um, Dylan, uh, the first day happens years and years before you... <laughs> You know, uh, I mean, it can be a various, a variety of ways you find material, but the fun is developing that material, right? You create the show before that first day of rehearsal. You spent years with the writers just figuring it out uh, and also working with the designers because by the time that first day of rehearsal starts, that your set is in the shop being built. So you already had to do a lot of homework before that first day comes. But I think it's because of that homework that allows you come the first day to, to be able to play and be organic with the blocking and staging because at that point you know exactly how a scene ends and how the next one begins. And so there's a lot of co- comfort in having those, those posts, those stepping stones along the way. And also I would say my process is very collaborative uh, in the sense that I was always taught that the best idea wins. So it doesn't matter if, you know, if someone comes in and observes rehearsal one day and has an idea, and if I think it's a good idea or the best idea, I go, thank you, and you steal it. Michael Bennett, um, who created Chorus Line and Dreamgirl, uh-huh. a, a great legend, he said, it's okay to steal as long as you pay back with interest. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Wow, the best idea wins. I feel like that's, there are many great leaders who could learn from that in general. Well, I think a common mistake is, I mean, Part of being successful, I think, is knowing your shortcomings as well as knowing your attributes, right? Hmm, you're, yes. you're confident in what you do well. Um, I, it's not difficult for me to surround myself with people that fill the void of my lack of expertise, you know? So it's really, it is re- really collaborative. And I also think as a director, it's not about you just telling people what to do, but it's you making people the best they can be. Uh, mm. I don't talk a lot to actors about process because usually if an actor asks me what I want in any particular moment, I don't want to limit it to my answer. I want mm. it to be better than what I could describe. I don't want wow. my limited vocabulary to limit the imagination. Um, so anyway, what, what you don't say, I think, is as important as what you do say. But anyway, yes, theater is incredibly collaborative, yeah. You have such a generous perspective on working with others. I think that's really amazing because, you know, I, you, when, you're, when you're young, you see these like wild, you see on TV and movies, these like, you know, dictator like directors who are like, no, this is my vision. But it sounds like you really foster such a, a warm, creative environment where people can actually thrive, you know, that's awesome. I don't know. It just seems logical to me. Maybe I'm just not good enough to, to, to do it any other way. I need all the help I can get. But why wouldn't you, right? Why wouldn't you want the, the best idea to win, you know? Mm-hmm. And also, I think times are different. You know, as times evolve, I think collaboration evolved. 
you know, dancers used to be treated so poorly. I know someone, and I won't mention names, but it was in my lifetime. I caught the tail end of this. He would refer, well, he, I've already narrowed it down. <laughs> they would uh, call their dancers creatures. Say, okay, my creatures. And I'd be like, could you imagine today? I mean, mm. it is so wrong, but we didn't know it was wrong. It was just right. it was a hierarchical thing, right? Sure. So I do think with time, things have evolved, thank God. And yeah. I think that's also um, affected the collaboration's evolution. Do you find that you like to frequently work with a lot of the same collaborators? Or is it sort of like each project brings a new, a new crew along? I've been going through a lot of soul searching about this. That's a really good question. Um, I'm very loyal. So I do like to work with the same people because you have a shorthand and it becomes family and it's really hard to make up shows. And so you want to give yourself every security blanket you can. And sometimes that familiarity and trust is part of it. However, as a white, you know, gay male, mm -hmm. years ago, I, I started, I tended to gravitate towards other young white gay men, you know, I guess there was a familiarity about that. And Absolutely. There wasn't a lot of work back then. And it was, so you thought you were helping. Now, as things evolve, you realize that loyalty becomes limiting. And mm. just a few years ago, I, I made a conscious effort to go at the expense of my loyalty is to look for to female designers. So it would broaden my perspective. And now with what's happening, uh, you know, in the world, um, finding, you know, people of color to design, you know, it, it is expanding all of our minds. And so I hope that I can progress, but it's scary because, you know, you don't have that comfort level if it's somebody new, mm -hmm. but I do think it's important. So it's a really good question. And it's one that I'm really, I think about all the time right now. Oh, that's, that's really admirable. That's fabulous. Now, Jeff, I have to ask you, we, we like to ask our guests lots of different questions but one that we are just curious about is, are you well? How are you doing? Oh, yeah. Thank you for asking. I'm really well. Um, I was hit with that ugly coronavirus early. I spent a, a week at um, Mount Sinai, and the doctors and everyone, they were just couldn't have been nicer. And um, thankfully, that chapter's in the rearview mirror now, and I'm completely healthy. And my husband and I have the antibodies, which I guess no one really knows what that means. <laughs> yeah, right. Good things, and now they don't mm -hmm. think positive. But no, no, I'm. We're both doing really well right now, and as far as health is concerned, thank goodness. That's great. They, I've read a lot about like people who survive COVID. They still have lingering symptoms or health troubles. Have you not found that to be the case for you? I know everybody's different. It's such an early, such an early virus. No one really knows the true trajectory of recovery, but do you feel, you feel like fine? Yeah, I've heard those same things, but I have to say for me, nothing that I can pinpoint. I mean, I wish there were certain things I could blame on COVID, but I, <laughs> no, no, I feel a hundred percent to be honest with you. Thank goodness. That's great. Cause we're, we're thrilled to be able to talk to you and you know, it's our industry, you know, it went through one different like major loss with the AIDS epidemic back in, I guess it was like 30 plus years ago now, but 30-ish years ago. And to think that people are going to be lost due to this again, but Broadway will bounce back, you know? 
Well, let's hope so. I don't know what it will look like mm-hmm. at many levels, but um, oh no, I was there for the in the thick of it during the AIDS yeah. epidemic, and we lost. Well, yeah, it's just yeah, it's hard to even think about. I remember th- we had <clears throat> back in the day Rolodex, right? Mm-hmm. We had everyone on an index card in a Rolodex. And I remember throwing out the whole Rolodex because there were fewer people still alive to start a new Rolodex than to try to erase or throw out from the old one. So I threw out the whole Rolodex. Oh, that's devastating. That is gut-wrenching to hear. Oh. I am so sorry. Yeah, it's a miracle any of us are alive because there was no rhyme or reason to it. Mm-hmm. We all did the same things. We all, you know, it, so I don't, I guess it's a good fortune or just your body and immunity because... Um, you can't pinpoint why some people we lost some people and we didn't lose others. Cause I, right. That we all did everything, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, coming, coming out of that time in our history, I feel like there was a lot of really powerful art and create like a, a boon of creativity. And I feel like one of the things that you really did was the, the 94 revival of Greece, which came right up kind of like right after all of that. Um, it was just this celebrated, long-running hit. What was that experience like? Connor and I are, are so curious about that production. Well, it's so funny that you mentioned earlier MTV because MTV had just, I don't know how many years, but it was relatively new at that point. And bringing John McDee back into the equation, I asked John to be our musical director and to be really candid with you because the writer, Jim um, Jacobs, was not a fan of our production. Uh, oh, and, you know, you have to make a show that you love, right? So, I mean, I would listen to the original soundtrack, and I'm sure it was really great for its time, but I didn't find it relevant for the 90s. And so I asked John to redo, and he just did an amazing job for people like, you know, Billy Porter and Sam Harris. And he, and, I mean, he, he, even Rosie, we had to, re- we redid all the charts to make it, I think something that people in the nineties wanted to see. So our hidden metaphor was let's do the first sort of MTV Broadway musical. And so we treated each number like it was its own music video. And uh, the other thing was looking at the book, I thought it was very difficult, you know, launches of shows, the way into a show is really tricky. And Mm -hmm. I didn't have a clue reading the original libretto, how to start the show. I, I just, it was beyond my imagination. Because it opens with the the reunion, and you've got old lady Lynch and what is it, Patty and Eugene, like doing the alma mater, right? Uh, yeah, and for my money, it, it's strange to start with the variation before you have the theme. So it's like mm. showing up on all these old people, but they're really young people pretending to be old people, and it was like it wasn't in my wheelhouse. So I thought, since I don't know how to start the show, let's have the show already started by the time the doors open. So at the Eugene O'Neill Theater, when you walked into that theater, my friend uh, Brian Bradley, who was playing Vince Fontaine, was spinning records on the stage. And so you came into a dance party. So the moms would let their kids go up on stage and dance. And it was a really fun way to start the show, kind of like a pre-show, maybe one of the first pre-shows. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I, was, I got inspiration from Mrs. Gardner, who directed all of our community theater productions at the North Star Players back in Pittsburgh. She would always come to Carson Auditorium, where we'd rehearse, and she would be in the back of the theater, and she'd blow this whistle, like a drum major's whistle, really loud. And wherever we were, we had to gather on stage to start rehearsals. So I thought, well, that would be a great way to start the show, interrupt the dance party. We had Miss Lynch at the back of the theater with a whistle, and she'd blow the whistle, and we started. So then I... 
I had permission from then. It sort of gave me maybe yeah. to go on with it. But um, yeah, we ran four years. We had a very successful tour, and I, I took a show that um, I, that was already a period piece. And I, I think, with the help of John and the, all my wonderful collaborators, we made it a viable '90s Broadway musical. Ah, uh, I w- awesome. so wish I could have seen it. That cast album is phenomenal. You mentioned the reorchestrations and everything. It is amazing. I also noticed, you know, this. Because the revival that we had, like back in '07, I want to say it was that included the music, the music from the movie, but yours included more. Um, there was a song that was like a radio hit at the time, right? Um, oh my gosh, the I, Sandy has a different Sandy song, had an right? additional song. Yeah, um, uh, I don't have hopes and dreams. I um, uh, since I don't have you, I think it was since fun. I don't have you. Mm-hmm. It's funny because we didn't want to um, pay for the song from the movie at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was what hopelessly devoted, right? Hopelessly devoted. Yeah, and it was very expensive. The rights to that song, and believe it or not, we were so innocent that we really had meetings saying, "Can this show be a success without that song?" <laughs> <laughs> and it was Tommy Tune who was um, listening to the radio one day and heard hopelessly devoted. No, heard um, since I don't have you, and he said, "Hey, I have an idea. Why don't we play this song in that spot?" And you know what? In the four years it ran, I don't think one person came up to me and asked me about Hopelessly Devoted. I love wow. that. I know, isn't it funny? It's like when we were doing, it's just so funny how you think you grow and mature and know things and you still find yourself being like a babe in the woods not knowing. I remember <laughs> high school musical, there was a discussion on, would the show work without Zac Efron? I mean, the kids are going to come expecting to see Zac Efron. And then I, but now looking back, that's sort of ridiculous, right? Yeah, you didn't expect to see John Travolta. So, right. (laughs) But you know, when you're young and you don't know, you have to learn these things, right? Experience. And you had so many different stars come in and do that grease. I mean, obviously, Rosie O'Donnell. It's Rizzo. It's Rizzo. Yeah. Well, that was a trick too, because obviously, with Grease, uh, Danny and Sandy, in theory, are the stars of the show. Sure. Yeah. You know, the job of a director is to serve. The be- to serve the piece. And in our piece, the star was Rosie O'Donnell. Let's be real. That's why, that's why we oh, yeah. did it, right? She was the queen of nice. She had her talk show. She was really, really famous at that moment in time um, and really good in the part. So we had to figure out how to give Rizzo sort of the star treatment without ruining the show. And so I had the idea to do like a, a, a roll call. So everyone stood up stage and one at, a one, one, one at a time, starting stage right, during the music, they would turn around and reintroduce their iconic characters to the 90s audience, whether it was Roger, Jan, Marty. Dan. So we worked our way up to Sandy, Danny, and Rizzo. So she had oh, I love sort, it. sort of gave that energy that it was Rizzo, but without hurting the script you know, at all. So that was fun. That was fun. Oh, that's terrific. Oh, I love it. That's so fun. Now, jumping like way ahead, way, way, way ahead. I'm so curious to ask you about your involvement with the West End 9 to 5 musical. Oh, wow. That was a happy chapter. And it only got interrupted by uh, the coronavirus. We were at the support mm. um, playing to sold out audiences on the West End. And uh, it's, it's funny because I remember years ago when I saw, I was with Tom Schumacher, the president of uh, Disney Theatricals. And we were in um, Los Angeles, and nine to five was uh, was um, 
they were creating the show there. That was their out of town city was Los Angeles. And I have to confess, this is a terrible thing because I'd like to think I was above it, but I was jealous. <laughs> There's no two ways about it. I was jealous. I'm like, darn it. I wish I could have had the opportunity to do this show. But anyway, you move on, right? And I saw yeah. it yeah. and I enjoyed it. And then it moved to New York and it didn't have the life I think that everyone was hoping. But then I didn't think about it. And years later, I got a call saying, would you like to... Um, do the national tour of nine to five and you can kind of rework it and, and um, give it a shot. And so I couldn't believe it that I was given a chance, right? Usually that does not. That's wild. Yeah. And so I think we worked on the show and we made it, I think we made it tourable. You know, when you tour a show, it's not, you have to think of the, the finances, the financial logistics as much as the creativity, because it's got to close on a Sunday, get thrown in so many trucks move across country, open up and open in the next city on a Tuesday night. The entire mm -hmm. everything, every wire for every light, any instrument, everything. It still amazes me to this day how, how that's done because it's, it's miraculous. Yeah. It's like when you walk into an airplane and you look at the cockpit, it's just so foreign to me. It's like, how does anyone understand? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I get that way when I look at the soundboard in the back of a house. I'm like, oh, Always. That's, one, that's just one aspect. So the whole shows get thrown in trucks and moved from city to city. So we figured out a way to, to make it uh, economically feasible to do that. And I made some changes within the show and Dolly wrote, did some new songs for the tour and it, it was fine. It wasn't, it, it was successful. Um, it wasn't a, it wasn't, you know, didn't break any box office records, but I thought it was very, it was very, it was successful. And then a couple of years after that, I got a call and this was just two years ago from a producer who wanted to do it on the West end. And I was very excited for that opportunity to, um, to even make the show better. Cause sometimes yeah. I could get that out of town, right. With nine to five, we just, uh, we just, the national tour was the first run at it. Um, so I was getting another shot at it and I thought, let's take advantage of this. And I, I went to Dolly and I, I told her sort of some ideas I had. Um, the biggest being, I just didn't think that, um, well, also Pat Resnick, the beautiful, you know, she's, she wrote the script for the film and the libretto for the stage version. And both Pat and Dolly were, are incredibly collaborative. But my theory was the fantasies don't work on stage. Mm -hmm. well as they work in the movie right we so why do yeah. something you know the audience is going to go well the movie did that better why even give yourself that um that challenge so anyway it was a big deal they thought again it was like will people like the show without um that song or with that from <laughs> it was like it's iconic, these fairy tales. And I said, well, I don't think so. I, I just think we should rethink that. And so Dolly wrote a whole new song. We jettisoned all the fantasies. Because listen, oh, wow. they, each lady had a fantasy, right? All three women had their own fantasy. So the two and a half minutes, the five, there are seven and a half minutes of the show right there. And we did it in, you know, Dora Lee said, ah, my fantasy, I'd like to hog time like a pig at a county fair, right? Yeah. You could do the whole song in one line of dialogue. And that's what mm. we did, but it's still, she created a song called Hey Boss that allowed the women to bond and still keep the narrative going all about, you know, the demise of uh, Mr. Hart, their boss. But that was just one thing. Oh. We made a lot of changes. And the other thing is, I remember when the show was on Broadway, they would have some um, technical problems with the set because mm -hmm. it was a very ambitious set. But people talked more about Dolly. They always say, oh, I was there the night Dolly went on stage and sang. I heard those legends, yeah. Yeah, it's like no one talked about the show. They talked about Dolly. 
being mm-hmm. on stage. And I thought, hmm, how interesting. I wish there was a way I could get Dolly in the show to have her DNA there. So I actually made Dolly sort of our narrator. So when the show starts, our logo 925 is a, an alarm clock. And so we just put a video of Dolly. I went down to Nashville and we, we shot Dolly. So when the show starts, she's, hey, y'all, how you doing? And right away, everyone's excited because they have that, you know, she's one of the few stars that can change like the, the molecules, the molecular uh. structure of a room just by her presence. And even though it was LED and not live, it still had that excitement of, having Dolly. And then at the end, she got to sing the song for us. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's hard to have the nine to five experience without Dolly Parton, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. yeah. So by adding her to the equation went a long way. Uh, that with a couple new songs and some tweaking of the book by Pat, uh, we were very successful at the Savoy. It was, very, it was a great chapter. Oh, how amazing. I love that. I loved the nine to five musical. I saw it on Broadway. But the movie's great. And it feels just as relevant now. I mean, especially post- I suppose we're still in the Me Too movement. It's the perfect kind of show to go see, you know, female empowerment, taking down, you know, the the negative and harmful workplace culture that men create. I, I think it's it's amazing. I mean, that's right. You're absolutely right, Con. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I love it. I actually have been watching a lot of Jane Fonda movies this summer. I watched for the first time Clute and Coming Home. Oh, wow. I love both of her Oscar-winning yeah. performances. Yeah, I love the TV um, show, too. Oh, I haven't seen it. Yeah, Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin and... Um, oh, yes. You don't know that? Uh, Grace oh. and Frankie. Yeah. Grace and Frankie. Frankie and Grace. Grace and Frankie, yeah. Uh, I yeah. haven't seen it. Oh, it's wonderful. It's binge-worthy. It's just great. It's so much fun. I, I, I loved it. And it just gets better and better, like most shows, when they figure themselves <laughs> out and you kind of are watching their process and figuring it out. And I think they've... I love it. I can't wait for uh, next season to start. You know, they did a benefit for Meals on Wheels, where you could Zoom, where they had all the actors in the little boxes of Zoom, and they actually did a table read of the first episode of the new season. And that was really fun to watch. Oh, I love oh, that. I love it. Yeah. The creativity of, of different production companies lately has been awesome. Wait, you know, you, speaking of benefits, I do know that you recently just had the sleep out for Covenant House, right? Yeah, which is why I'm a little rambling. I'm still recovering because <laughs> outside all night and um, it was just uh, the night before last. So I am still recovering from that, but we raised a lot of money. The theater community, uh, along with the television and film community, uh, sleep out in solidarity with our homeless kids uh, at Covenant House um, on their behalf, actually. And we raised a lot of money. I think we raised oh, $450,000 that night. Wow, yeah, that's remarkable. Really great people, Audrey McDonald and Stephanie Block and, um, you know, uh, Rachel Brosnahan from the Marvelous. Maisel, yeah. A lot of really great people, you know, theater people and just entertainers in general are so, their hearts are so big usually, and they're so there for, to help people. And I love that about our community too. I love that. Jeff, I have to ask you something, which we kind of talked about your, your beginnings and getting into the arts when you were, you know, 16, but do you feel like you have a moment, what we call our ring of keys moment, when you had that moment of recognition, when you thought, oh my gosh, I want to be involved in the arts, in theater, and entertainment in some way. Do you feel like you um, can think of a memory or a time when you that clicked for you? Um, well, 
I don't want to be redundant, but it was sort of like as a child, it, I love football. So watching, you know, Terry Bradshaw and Joe Namath on TV, <laughs> oh, I want to be like them. And again, I saw choreography and I mean, I loved everything about football, the costumes, the set, the lighting. I loved it all. Um, but also, I guess it's watching all those old Fred Astaire movies. Mm. Every one of them. I just, there was something about it when that music started and he started to dance, something happens. I think you're born, it's in your DNA and it activates something. I don't think if it's not there, you watch it and have the same feeling. I think it's all in you. You just have to have something to ignite those molecules. And I think hearing that music and seeing that dancing did something internally where I felt at home. It was like, oh my God, I'm part of this somehow. And then Dick Van Dyke too. Oh yes. I mean the Dick Van Dyke show when he would come in da 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 and the music would start and he'd have that ottoman in the middle of the floor and he'd fall over it. Well, every day I'd come home from school and I'd make my mom be Laura Petrie and I'd put our ottoman in the middle of the floor and I'd wait and I'd wait and I would do it with Dick Van Dyke every day, Monday through Friday. I didn't miss Oh, that's so cute. So I don't know, it's in the I think it's just in your blood. I love, that's so true. You know, and speaking of like art on television, you've had some connections to um, Disney being a part of your career. Like you mentioned earlier that you did the stage adaptations of High School Musical, the first and the second one. Um, Is that sort of how you got involved with Disney and then what led to Newsies? Yes. Oh, absolutely. I don't know that Tom knew me from, you know, Adam until (laughs) the uh, High School Musical. And we were just one of three sanctioned um, productions. That we did it in Atlanta at the Fox okay. And I didn't know there were two other productions happening at the same time. And ours sort of just ignited. And then uh, they made it the official Disney production that traveled all around the country and literally the world. So that was my introduction to Disney. And then years later, I got a phone call from um, Tom Schumacher saying, would I like to come listen to a reading of a new musical? And that's really all he said. And then I walk in and there's Harvey Firestein and there's Alan Menken, and <laughs> Jack Feldman. And, and I, I never heard of a newsie. I didn't know what newsies was. I, I never okay. saw a movie. Mm. So it, it was a new experience. And the show had such heart. And there was a guy in the reading who was the lead who was like, I'm like, who is this guy? It's like some young Marlon Brando. And it turns <laughs> out his name was Jeremy Jordan. <laughs> a young Marlon Brando. It really, it was just wonderful. And, the sh- and it was over the reading. And Tom said, so do you think this is something you'd be interested in working on? And I'm like, oh my God. Once I picked myself up off the ground, I said, yes, please. <laughs> and even though it was just going to be a few weeks at the Paper Mill Playhouse. Right. Real, it was literally just going to be, because so many schools were stealing from the movie and doing their own uh-huh. thing. Disney thought, well, we might as well have something that we get the royalties from that we can license and so they thought if we put a production together they then have a libretto and a score to send schools to do legal productions of it and it just sort of snowballed and um, people came and they really liked it and so uh, I don't know it just kept going thank god yeah I mean it's we love newsies we we had Kara Lindsay on a few weeks ago and she oh my goodness the best and she just talked about what an amazing director you were and what a great experience it was and how you kind of took a chance on her as well in bringing her into the production. You know, it was real, it's funny, but casting Catherine was one of the most difficult 
harder even than casting the newsies to be honest because we'd have great people that we thought were perfect and then it would come to that song mm. i mean that's a really hard song oh i can't imagine yeah that was the demise of several really talented actresses but kara nailed it and um she not only is she talented she's just so generous of heart and spirit right she was oh yeah she was the perfect Catherine for my money i was it was an honor to work with her Oh, yeah. And her and Jeremy, I mean, I didn't see either of them live, but I did see it in the filmed, you know, production of Newsies. Their chemistry is unbelievable. Yeah, it was. It, it was unbelievable. And, you know, the only reason that we really had, because after the reading, it didn't happen right away, right? The show has to get rewritten and fixed and tweaked. And so um, I had another show called Bonnie and Clyde. Mm-hmm. And I was determined, well, Jeremy is... is the quintessential Clyde. I mean, he was just the right age, the right look, everything. And so the, the, the trouble I was having is, okay, now we have Jeremy as Clyde. Who's going to play Jack Kelly? And it was really like, oh my God, here we go again. We're going to have to have a big open call and do this whole search. And then when Bonnie and Clyde didn't have the life that we all had hoped, Jeremy became available to, to be Jack Kelly. So it kind of all worked out. Wow. And was that in like the same season or just the following season? It was like a really close turnaround. I think it was the same season. Yeah, it was the same season. Well, well, I don't know if we opened on Broadway in the same season. I know mm-hmm. Paper Mill was like right away. I'm not good yes. at that. I'm like, <laughs> really, I'm just, I'm not good at that. Well, you mentioned Bonnie and Clyde. Another, just that score is just absolutely gorgeous. And I so wish that we could have seen that. Do you think that there's any, any further life for Bonnie and Clyde? Maybe a West End retooling or something? Boy, would I, I love that because I love that show. And I think it's, I love Frank. Frank's like my older brother. And um, I thought the book was really good that Ivan Menchel wrote. He's also great. And Don Black is an English legend. Um, the lyricist. And I hope, you know, you just don't know in this business, but you yeah. just trust the universe. If something is worthy and good enough, usually things work out and are given opportunities. So I haven't lost hope. I certainly hope that's in the cards because I love the show and working with Laura Osnes and Jeremy and Melissa. I mean, it was just in clay. It was a great group. I loved it. Loved every second of them. Oh gosh, that cast. So good. I, it's, I, I, I agree. You know, I never thought we'd see another nine to five. And so there you go. There it could be a, a lesson there. Um, wow. There are just so many things and moments from throughout your career, but I do have to ask about working with Reba McIntyre and, uh, and get your gun. Now, were you still like, did you help put, bring her in then? Or was it like associates at that point? It was, I'm trying to think at the time, again, my memory, I'm just, I'm going to blame it on COVID. Yes, there is a lingering side effect. <laughs> um, no, I wasn't there, to be honest. It wasn't, I wasn't nine to five with Reba. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think who, um, probably Patty DeBeck, I would think, after they put her in. So, no, I would come near the end and to watch. Because there wasn't, there, uh, what notes do you give? She is Annie Oakley. Uh-huh. Right. You're not going to do better casting. I mean, right? She's from there. She knows how to shoot a rifle. She's, <laughs> she, yeah, she was sort of pretty definitive. It, you know, not that Bernadette, listen, Bernadette is iconic and everything mm-hmm. she 
was, I mean, I would, I loved her from when I was a kid watching Pennies from Heaven or when she was on the Muppets. Or I just remember there was something about her that was just like unreal and bigger than life. And I always loved her. So she was remarkable. But just from a organic point of view, Reba, Reba, it would be hard to, to beat Reba in, in that role, <laughs> you know, as Annie Oakley. Kind of remarkable. You know the show I'd love to do with Reba? I would love to do... That, to me, would be reason to revive the best little whorehouse in Texas. Mm-hmm. If you could have Reba play the madam. Oh, yeah. You know? <laughs> Which is funny. I'm just thinking now of Dolly, because I did that film with Dolly, the best little whorehouse in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in the chorus. Actually, when I interviewed for the, for the 9 to 5 to direct it on stage, I had to go to Nashville and interview with Dolly. And I brought her a picture that I had taken of the two of us on the set that I actually gave all of my family for Christmas in 1981 because it was the first Christmas that I couldn't do, that I wasn't mm. with my family because I was working. So I sent a picture of me and Dolly. But anyway, I say that because in my mind now, I think of Dolly at that point in her life and what she looked like and Bernadette, and they're not dissimilar. Mm. Yeah. The collection and the, the, the voluptuousness and Interesting, but yeah, not dissimilar in my mind, at least at this moment. No, I, I see it. I absolutely see it. So before we move into our final little segment, I do have one question for you. As looking back on your career this morning, and just, I mean, there's obviously so much ahead. We have Between the Lines coming back in 2021 that was supposed to happen. But what would you say you're most proud of? Like, what would your legacy, uh, looking, at, looking at it overall? Well, as you say, hopefully I haven't created it yet. Um, it's like Norman Rockwell, when they asked him what his favorite painting was, his answer was always the next. Oh, and, um, yeah. I, I, you mm. can't be that sentimental in this business because unless you're Phantom of the Opera, your show will close someday. And so yeah. you have to be okay with that and move mm. on to the next or else your heart is broken. Every time a show closes, your heart's broken. Yeah. So you have to have a certain kind of fortitude in this business. But um to not be coy, to answer your question, I would say it would have to be my involvement with Deaf West. Oh. Um, working with mm. the, uh, the artists in the Deaf community, we've created several shows together, one of which came to New York, the American Airlines Theater, thanks to um, Todd Hames and Roundabout Theater. Uh, it was a production of Big River, and half the cast was deaf and the other half was hearing. Mm-hmm. And it was the most challenging work I ever had to do. And I think probably the most rewarding because none of us knew what we were embarking on. And the finished product was just a, a culmination of a series of solving problems and challenges that you don't even think about, right? When you have half the actors having to stay with music they can't hear. And mm-hmm. the other half of the cast doing mm-hmm. all their lines in addition to talking in ASL where they had to learn a whole nother language. I just even, I just can't begin to tell you how complicated it was. And so it was as rewarding as it was complicated. Like most things in life Mm -hmm. are Mm -hmm. the opposites, right? You, you, you have the propensity to be as sad only to the degree that you can be happy, right? You can only cry to the degree that you can laugh. Mm -hmm. You can only, I think things are mathematically, proportionate in their in their opposites but anyway that was as rewarding as it was challenging so i would say deaf west's production of big river that's amazing of course starring michael oh, that's Arden, phenomenal. Right? yeah michael michael played tom sawyer 
in that production, Ty Giordano was um, actually Huck Finn and Dan Jenkins. Oh, it's so bizarre. Dan Jenkins in the original Big River was Huck Finn. And in my production, our production, he oh. was Mark Twain, but he still voiced for Huck because Huck was deaf actor. Okay. Isn't that, I mean, when would that ever happen? Oh, wow. You know, years later, you can play the same role vocally. <laughs> it's remarkable. So everything about it was a line. It was in the mm-hmm. stars. That was just one of those magic experiences that um, you only hope to recreate that kind of magic again in your life. Oh, that's fabulous. Fabulous. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Michaels, how did you meet your Michael? Uh, he... Well, this is the part where you said it's like a, did you say this, the show, like a rainy afternoon kind of a Wednesday? Yeah. Is that just to me? <laughs> I did. Yeah, it was on the show. <laughs> oh, good. Well, it was kind of like that. It has nothing to do with show business. It was actually given to me as a present. Oh. <laughs> He's a, Michael's a massage therapist. <laughs> Friend Freddie on uh, one of my birthdays gave me a massage and it was Michael. And... Um, that was 20 years ago. <laughs> I love that. Oh, my goodness. Talk about a meet cute. How oh, fun that's is great. that? Oh, my God. <laughs> that is so great. All right. Well, as we're wrapping up here, we like to end on something we call a dose of drama, which is where we share the drama in our hearts or on our minds. It could be a piece of content we've been consuming, you know, maybe something that's just from the conversation that we still haven't felt like we've been able to express fully. So does anybody have a dose of drama today? Dylan, do you want to kick it off? I'll go first. I'll go first. And I might need some help from Jeff on this once we, once we turn off the, the recording, but I am participating in a fantasy football league, this drama fall for the first time in my life. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a stretch for me, but the draft is on Monday. So I have no idea what I'm doing. I've enlisted two of my straight best friends to give me a little rundown on how the draft even works. Maybe I'll win some money. Now, I don't see why you had to say you enlisted your straight friends to talk about football. Now, why I don't understand that. I don't know why more gay people do not, men in particular, like football. It's just, it's, it's watching a drama and you don't know the ending. It unfolds right before your eyes. It's so theatrical, the costumes, right? I mentioned earlier, the light. I just don't understand. Oh, yeah. But anyway, my friends, I'm crazy. <laughs> that's, an amazing, that's an amazing take on football. I, I have to say, that makes me intrigued. To, um... so it's, and it's balletic and athletic. I mean, Lynn Swan, who was one of the great wide receivers for the Pittsburgh Steelers when I was a kid in the, in the 70s in Pittsburgh, and he was the first NFL player to take ballet class. And because he's, you know, Lynn Swan, no one's going to wow. mess with him. So it helped me as a kid when kids would make fun of me, I would just say, well, Lynn Swan does it. And then they would shut up. <laughs> oh, wow. That's cool. I love that. <laughs> Connor, what's your dose? My, I have so many that are going on in my mind, but I have to say I had one plan coming into this, but I still can't stop thinking about how Dorinda Medley is playing out her final season on the Real Housewives of New York. I know, you know, it's kind of like when your favorite football player is traded from your favorite team and, or maybe not even at your favorite, just a, a really great player on a team. Uh, this is a very sports themed um, <laughs> comparison here, but, you know, I, Dorinda, I loved in her first few seasons as a housewife. 
she ha- it's taken a sour turn in the end here. She's got some anger problems, definitely alcohol issues. And I think her leaving the show is what's best for her personally. But it's still so sad. She's really made her imprint on culture. And when you think New York Housewives, she is one of those first few women you think of. So got to pour some out for Dorinda. She always made it nice. And, um, you know, she iconically just really had these trips to the Berkshires. So I hope that they can still incorporate these in. But I'm feeling really dramatic about it because it is a new New York coming into this next season of yeah. The Real Housewives. So. Connor, I don't want you to hate me, but I have to be very disagreeable on that because to make an analogy about that and football, when these are really talented, exceptional people and it's really reality television versus what you're talking about. But anyway, we'll let that fly. <laughs> we'll, let, we'll agree to disagree, Jeff. <laughs> uh, for me, I think it would have to be called doses of drama. That it does, and I don't think we have enough time. So I'm just going to narrow it down to my favorite um, show now that I'm completely obsessed with. It's called The Restaurant. Mm-hmm. And it's a Sundance. Oh. It's a Sundance original. I believe it's Sundance. And it's Swedish. So it's... Oh, oh I've heard of it. I'm telling you, not since... I mean, I was obsessed with um, The Great, right? Elizabeth The Great. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, Catherine Elizabeth. Have more coffee, Jeff. Catherine The Great. Did you see that? The Great? <laughs> On Hulu, well, okay. yeah. Not since then have I been so captivated by a show, and it's called The Restaurant, and it's I highly recommend it. It's just really, on every level, it's just fantastic. I love that. We'll definitely take the recommendation. No yeah. real housewives, but, you know. It's- <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, I'll watch The Restaurant if you check out um, Real Housewives. No, you're like, oh, my assistant, um, Spencer, he loves the, that show, The Bachelor. Oh yeah, I watched mm-hmm. that too. I'm a huge oh, fan. What is happening to the world? I think it, I think what it is is it lets me turn off my brain a little That's bit. True. You know, you have no argument there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jeff, this has been such a delightful conversation. I'm so I'm so pleased that you um, took some time to chat with us today. Truly, and I love talking to both of you. So thank you, Dylan and Connor. It's really a pleasure to meet you. It's so nice uh, to meet we, you. We appreciate it. We cannot wait to see everything that's still in store from your brilliant brain and collaborations down the line. I hope that you get to see Between the Lines because it's a really beautiful <sighs> piece and it's based on Jodi Picot, her novel with her, her daughter, Samantha, and it's Tim McDonald uh, did the adaptation and these wonderful um, composer lyricists, um, Elisa and Kate, uh, just did a great score. And it's, I'm really excited about it. That was probably the saddest part of the COVID is that that got um, mm. postponed. And the cast is amazing that you've got Ariel Jacobs and Julia Murray. Oh, yeah. And, and um, Vicky. Oh, my God. We have Vicky. Vicky Lewis, Lewis is yeah. amazing. I've always loved her. I've always wanted to work with her. Yeah, the cast is remarkable and the design team's remarkable. And it's a, a, a show about a young lady written by two women, composed by two women and produced by a woman, Daryl Roth. So it's a really, it's oh. great to be around all of the, the, that feminine energy and um, sort of that circles back to what we talked about before, right? So it's a yeah. whole new team for me to collaborate with and I think I'm all the better for it. Oh, I, love, I love it. We're excited. And everyone can, of course, follow you at the Jeff Calhoun on Twitter and Instagram to see all of your upcoming projects. And everyone can follow us at the Drama Podcast and me at Dylan McDowell. And me at Connor McDowell. All right. And we will see you next time. Drama. Drama.